This is the Blue Eye Mafia podcast, and today we have a very special guest in Destiny, Herden De La Rosa. She is the founder and, I guess, president of New Wave Feminists, which is a pro-like activist group, and Albany Rose turned me on to her, and I hit her up to do an interview because a pro-life feminist seems like an oxymoron in this day and age. So she came on graciously and explained their position and how they view things and how in from their perspective being pro-life is more pro-woman than not and how having more choices than just abortion or having the baby um, is truly being pro-choice and she did an amazing job far better than I'm doing in this little summary um, but it was a, a very enjoyable conversation and we talked about a lot of other things porn and the damage that's doing to men the freedom that um sex without consequences given to men to be absolute douchebags so we had a lot of fun and talked about a lot of different things so you'll hear all of that in the podcast and yeah you'll enjoy it she says it better than i'm saying right now i'm marbled mouth but if you want to check out new wave feminist you can find them on twitter at new at nfw pro tx that's at nfw pro tx you can also find them on instagram and facebook at New Wave Feminists, and you can go to their website, newwavefeminists.com. They have merch. You can donate if you really feel their cause and want to help out. So, without further ado, I'm going to let you hear from her. But first, we have a sponsor that puts this show on the air, and that sponsor is Strike Force Energy. Strike Force Energy are little pouches of energy that you can put into any beverage that you choose. It comes in four great flavors, and it is just amazing. You don't have to carry around those big burdensome cans anymore so go to strikeforceenergy.com use the promo code blue eye mafia and you get 20 percent off anyways here's the podcast one welcome to the blue eye mafia podcast and today we have a very special guest the founder of new way feminists uh destiny herden de la rosa did i say that right you got it. That was pretty good. Thank you. Well, my last name's Gomez, Rob Gomez. Oh, there Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. See, I I could never be all right. They wouldn't accept me. They would kick you out immediately. Yeah. It would I be look like, like that a white character, right? Like the blind, the blind clansman who's black. It would be one of those oh, things. <laughs> that's one of my favorite skits ever. <laughs> it's pretty, pretty ingenious. Oh my gosh. <laughs> uh, could you imagine if they could put that on TV today? You know, that that is the weird thing, how much the culture has changed in such a short amount of time. I was at a, um, a movie thing with a bunch of moms, like a couple years back, we were watching one of the Brat Pack movies, the, uh, it was 16 Candles. So I had seen all the other ones. I had never seen 16 Candles. And I'm 34. At the time, I guess I was around 30. And most of the other moms are in their 40s. And so as we were watching it, it gets that scene where Jake Ryan hands off his unconscious girlfriend over to Michael Anthony Hall. And he's like, have fun with her. Just get her home by dawn. And I'm like horrified watching this and like i think we owe bill cosby an apology if this was okay in the 80s like what in the hell are we looking at and all of these women were just like 
oh my gosh, yeah, like definitely you can't um, date rape women anymore, which it's good. It's good. We've made good changes, but I think a lot of it's happened so fast. People haven't even realized it, right? Oh, totally. Well, and I think that whenever you have a movement that so quickly gains ground so quickly that you have to be careful, it doesn't tip too far, you know, whether it's a right leaning or left leaning, whatever it may be. If you take things too extreme, they become exactly that extreme, (laughs) you know, and, and tend to stomp down on people's freedom. I think that's where we're seeing a little bit of, and it's, there's good that comes out of it, but also bad. So we've got to make sure we curtail the negatives and promote the positives. I totally agree. So um, let's let me ask you a little bit about you. Just who are you? Um, how did you become an activist? If Whatever you want to share, go ahead. Cool. Um, yes, my name is Destiny. I'm the president and founder of New Wave Feminists. Um, we are a pro-life feminist organization, which to a lot of people, that's kind of like an oxymoron. Like you can't be pro-life and a feminist um, just because abortion rights have become so synonymous with third wave feminism. But really, it makes complete sense to us that, you know, for most of history, women were treated as property. And then now we've gained liberation and, you know, most of our rights and all of this stuff. And here we are turning around and treating the unborn person as property. So in a lot of ways, abortion has allowed us to become the oppressor, we believe. Um, you know, so our whole belief is that human beings should be free from violence for the duration of their lifetime. And we're, you know, anti-death penalty, anti-war, anti-torture. And then we take that into the womb when a human being's at its most vulnerable and innocent by being anti-abortion as well. And, um, you know, obviously that kind of ruffles a lot of feathers and it's caused some controversy in the past, um, My group was part of the Women's March on Washington back in 2016, and, you know, we were never Trump, and we were, uh, you know, in alignment with a lot of the things we're anti-sex trafficking, anti-domestic abuse, you know, we're feminists, Uh, but then we also are anti-abortion, which we let them know that up front, and they accepted us, and so they said we could be sponsors, and, you know, we were sponsors for four glorious days, and then word got out that they had let pro-life feminists in, and all hell broke loose, and Twitter went crazy, and you know, I always joke that women are really strong. We can do anything except for stand up to bullies on Twitter. So immediately the women's march caved and, <laughs> and they removed us. And um, it ended up being one of the best things that ever happened to us, though, because it really kind of put us on the map and started this national conversation. You know, can you be anti-abortion and a feminist? And I think on the surface, when people just think pro-life, you know, they have all of these um you know, kind of stereotypes in their head of what of what pro-life is. But really, I think we're trying to break the mold of that and show that this is just about being consistently opposed to violence uh, while also standing up for women's rights. You know, we, we understand that an unplanned pregnancy is a crisis situation. And for so many women, it's very scary. Um, I experienced one myself at 16. And if I had not had the support system, um, you know, a family that was willing to keep me under their roof and health insurance and all of these other things, I might have been pressured into having an abortion as well. And so, uh, you know, we kind of really try to work on the practical side of it too, by saying, what is it that makes women think that abortion is their only option? Because that's, that's not pro-choice, you know, when a woman feels like she has no other choice. 
And um, yeah, I guess that's kind of new wave feminism in a nutshell. Well, that's, that's really awesome. Um, what are the options that you would suggest? What are the options that you guys try to promote to give women an actual choice? Um, you know, definitely, obviously we focus on parenting and adoption, but there's so much more, you know, involved. And that's the funny thing when people call me anti-choice, I'm like, please, that's so ridiculous to me. Like we are anti the one choice that, you know, terminates a human being's life. Other than that, there are so many choices. And, you know, I think back on, on my own teen pregnancy, how I was never, um, abortion was not an option for me because my mother had actually gotten pregnant with me at 19 at the University of Texas down in Austin, very liberal college town. And it would have made a lot of sense for her to choose abortion and, um, you know, been viewed as like the responsible progressive thing to do. So I think I've just always known that, um, you know, my own life could have been on the chopping block. And so when I became pregnant with my son, I was so mad at myself, like so mad. Here I was repeating this cycle. I knew how hard it was. You know, my life was definitely not easy because, you know, I, I came from this unplanned pregnancy and, and, you know, life was tough, but at the same time, would I rather not be here? Like, of course not. I'm still glad I'm alive. And so, um, knowing that with my, my child, um, I wanted to make sure that I wasn't making a selfish decision. And so I considered adoption and, you know, you have open adoption and closed adoption. And even within that, there are so many different ways to kind of customize this. Uh, but for me personally, again, I did have a family that supported me. And so, you know, I worked my whole pregnancy and was able to save up money and was able to um, continue going to school. And now it's wild. Like my son's 17, the same age I was when I had him. And it's so crazy because I look at him and I'm like, he's such a baby. Like I can't imagine, um, you know, him having a child. But it's it's something where at the same time, like it forced me to grow up pretty fast and take responsibility. And in so many ways, it probably saved me from wasting my time doing a bunch of other teenage shit, right? Like I yeah. kind of got this head start on, on growing up. Um, but again, I had so many peers who chose abortion because they were going to be kicked out of their home or, um, you know, didn't have health health care and didn't, I mean, you know, the thing is like a 16 year old brain, you have no idea if a baby costs like a thousand dollars or like a hundred thousand dollars. Like you don't know how much it costs to have a baby and what you're going to do. And so I think letting women know that they have access um, in most states to, you know, Medicaid once they're pregnant and that will cover most of the cost of labor and delivery and, you know, getting them in touch with um, either parenting resource groups so that they can raise their child or getting them in touch with adoption agencies so they can fully explore these choices. Like all of those things in my mind are very, very empowering. And you have nine months to, to go through them all. Whereas with abortion, you know, you the, the clock's ticking every single week. Um, you know, that clump of cells is looking a little bit more like a person. And, you know, the heartbeat gets, is getting louder and the abortion procedure is getting more expensive. And then you have this industry that wants to kind of prey on vulnerable women when they're in that panicked position. And, um, you know, it's just, it's kind of ironic because in my mind, those, again, most of the women you see accessing abortion are ones that feel like they have no other choice. So, uh, you know, just really letting people know the resources that are even around them, I think, is is truly empowering to women. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, when I was a when I was a kid, I was 
was raised real Catholic and um, still am one. Uh, but when I did my final paper for high school, I can't remember what class it was for, though. I, I did a 30 page uh, paper on abortion and the research I did from it, I read uh, accounts from different women who had had abortions. One girl had four, I think, by the time she was 16. And that was the impression I got from it was it wasn't a choice. Her mom forced her to do it every time and she was destroyed by it. And I was, you know, as a kid, you know, not the greatest intuition, but I'm going, this doesn't seem like something that's helpful, something that's doing the right thing. You know, it, it really was more of a tragedy, you know, almost like a Shakespearean thing than some empowering decision. Right. Well, and look at the psychology even behind that, like someone having four different unintended pregnancies um, that are all ending in abortion. Like, I think that that's what's so fascinating to me. The women who abort and then end up pregnant very soon after, whether they even, you know, are willing to admit it to themselves. Like it's, it's 2018. Like when we've known for a while how to prevent pregnancy and how not to get pregnant, but that tells me that you are trying to replace something. Like there is that void after an abortion. And that's why, you know, there's all these campaigns to remove the stigma, but I always tell people, I don't think it's a, it's a you know man-made stigma. I think it's a biological stigma. I think that there is something inside of women that is like this freaking, I don't know, it's like the mama bear, whatever that beast mode is that we go into that will protect <laughs> yes. the vulnerable, right? Like that shit's badass. Why on earth are we being told that that's like this weakness and liability? Like in my opinion, if, if I was like an alien that just got dropped down here and had to assess the situation, I would say, this culture hates women. Like, look at, I used to do this thing when I would go to colleges. I would make all the kids close their eyes and I would say, <clears throat> okay, I want you to picture the biggest, like greasiest douchebag, like straight off the set of Jersey Shore. Like he's at a gym pumping iron. He's wearing one of those mesh shirts where like his nipples are showing. It makes people really uncomfortable. <laughs> they don't wear nipples, right? Like it's that guy and like you're him. So just picture yourself like being that level of a douchebag and you walk outside of the gym and suddenly you're in douchebag utopia. Like, what does that look like to you? Um, in my mind, it would be a bunch of like half naked chicks throwing themselves at me, like offering no strings attached sex, like paying for their own food, like opening their own doors, right? Like everything um, that a douchebag would be super into and so I say, okay, so imagine that you're this guy and three weeks have passed. You know this because you've already got to like rewax your chest or whatever it is you do in your douchebag life. Um, when one of these like chicks calls you up and she's like, oh my God, I'm totes pregnant. <laughs> what do you do? And you're like, hey baby, I got this. Like, let me chip in. I'll pay halfsies for your abortion. Yeah. Um, that's insane that that is also what radical modern day feminists call liberation. <laughs> like we're doing something wrong. And I think I realized that when I, there was this big like Twitter, Instagram thing about free the nipple. And I was like, you've got to be effing kidding me. Like <laughs> if your feminist rally is pulling the same crowd that would go to a wet t-shirt contest, you might be doing feminism wrong. Like last time I checked, 
dudes love tits. So maybe, maybe we're not uh, <laughs> feminist incorrectly anymore. But there's so many things about radical feminists that do exactly that, that actually like empower douchebags rather than standing up for the human dignity of the woman. And in this case, the child. Well, I've always posited the theory that feminism was really created by dudes because they're like, look, how do we get the women to do half the work, have as much sex with us as we want without us having to raise the, raise the kids? Let's call it Margaret Sanger. <laughs> you know, like, it's it's like a it's like a reverse psychology, right? Like, it, it and really that's is. what I always picture. Did you ever see the movie? It's a wonderful life. Oh, it's one of my favorite movies. Frank Capra. Right. It's like, so whenever I picture like Roe v. Wade, you know, the, the beginnings of Roe v. Wade, I always think about like Mr. Potter. Cause he was such just like a turd of a human and yeah. like a Mr. Potter type character surrounded by other Mr. Potters at a table. And then being like these damn minorities, like what are they, they just keep breeding. Like, how are we going to get rid of them? Oh, if only we could get them to, you know, kill kill their children like oh well nobody in their right mind would do that okay well how about this how about we call it a right and we say we're taking it away from them that's literally like how simple this was was to convince women that this was a right we're taking away and it's crazy because you go look around the world at you know countries that are not colonized and when you try to introduce abortion they're like get that shit out of my face like you want me to kill my child what like this doesn't make sense to other people this is not something that we you know again that that biological stigma naturally this makes zero sense for for us to be doing this oh totally oh, well totally. Uh, that well, kind of leads into one of the questions i was going to ask which is which is what parts of mainstream <laughs> feminism i mean you have first wave second wave third wave and arguably fourth wave which is the newest one um but what parts of that do you think were positive and what parts are negative and how do you think the overall impact do you think it's been good for our culture bad or a mix of both obviously a mix of both but which way do you think it tips the scales well i mean obviously i think every every wave has had its positives and we're at the point now with like you said where we could be on the cusp of a fourth wave i definitely would say that you know now we're looking at intersectionality. So we're looking at feminisms rather than just kind of one wave of feminism. I would say that you have to go back and you have to, you have to take the good and leave the bad. So like, I really like voting and driving and wearing pants and stuff like that. Like that's all good. But again, like taking my shirt off cause that's liberating. No, my boobs are freaking amazing. Like they're well, amazing. They can wait, do amazing things. Wait a minute. Okay. Yes. Let's be careful. Don't throw away all the good. Wait. Oh, oh, hold on. You want to keep the free the nipple? I understand. I well, understand. I mean, it's, it's insane. You made feminism. I forgot. It's insane that the chive, you know, because they've been doing that for years, they're considered sexist because they objectify women. But literally, they have they share a hashtag with the feminist movement. It's like, oh, oh okay. So no, who gets everything about hashtag? <laughs> It's ridiculous. Well, like, that's what I always tell people. Can you believe that Cosmo magazine is a feminist publication? Like the fact that a magazine dedicated to like blowjob techniques is considered a feminist publication enrages me. And so again, like 
your your stupid man nipples are dumb. They do nothing. Like get them all sunburned and chafed. And I don't care what you do with your man nipples. But females' bodies are phenomenal. And so when did we do this thing where we wanted to settle for equality with males? Like that's bullshit. That's not good feminism. We need to be having this higher standard. Women are amazing. I can sustain human life with my boobs. They make food. That's amazing. They're worth yeah. protection and respect and honor. Yeah. Well, I think it's funny. It's it's this strange because of the Judeo-Christian ethic that they consider part of the patriarchy and the norm heteronormative culture, they throw out things that are positive it, because they're just so dead set on that being bad. All of it. It's wholesale. Okay, that ideology is right. bad, so we have to do the opposite. And it's like, well, no, every ideology has its negatives. And everyone has its positives. And some of those positives we've seen go through culture after culture, and they've been good for them. So we shouldn't throw them all out. But it's like, no, women are the same as men. But it's like, well, no, they're way prettier. They're, they're way more talented at many, many things. Why do we not look at that? You know, why, why do we want to – parody is not equality. You know, it's it, – I don't want every girl to have the beer gut. You know, that's just not good. <laughs> I don't know. I think I'm pro beer good, but I definitely, I definitely. <laughs> no, no. Think I'm talking that- like construction guy, the bad beer gut. You know, you have to have a hairy <laughs> chest to even have that thing. <laughs> I think maybe I don't want men to have that either. Then, oh, like I- again, let's talk about raising the bar for everybody. Like, rather than me taking off my shirt, you keep your shirt on. How about that? Like, who threw that idea out of the first like planning <laughs> stage of free the nipple? I mean, again, we lowering to this like base standard rather than saying men should come up to this higher standard. And, and, and I totally agree with what you're saying that, you know, we are not the same. Equality is different than, you know, saying that men are the same as women. And obviously, um, you know, that's where we have settled for equality. We have given up um, some really kind of badass capabilities. I think that women have because we just want to be the same as men. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, and it's sad because like I I try to, I view it from a very somewhat traditional standard, but also progressive in a way, which is why I don't like, like I'm not, I don't consider myself a conservative, a libertarian. I'm a mix of everything. I'm independent. I think I, I pick the best solution to each problem that I see. And one of the things that I, that I think is sad is that like chivalry, you know, that was a higher standard, of course, rooted in the evil patriarchy. But the idea of chivalry is that you treated women as beautiful, wonderful objects to be adored and to be protected, if you will, from war, obviously, because in the times that chivalry was a thing, you know, you had it was, you know, the dark ages. But that ideal shouldn't just be tossed out. You know, I can't make a baby. My wife can. I can't. So there's different roles that we have that are biologically necessitated. And I think to ignore that is to actually detract from this, the gifts that we have naturally. You know, not everybody can paint like Picasso or if you don't like Picasso, you know, Rembrandt. But at the same time, they shouldn't just because they can't do that 
they shouldn't tear down Picasso or Rembrandt or Da Vinci, you know, they, that should be celebrated. And then if that person's a good poet, that should be celebrated, you know? So each one of our talents, each one of our capabilities should be maximized, not minimized trying to keep everybody equal or the same. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I see what you're saying. I think I'm trying to make like a menstruation Jackson Pollock joke in my head, but it's just not coming fast enough. So that's, um, that's me. No, I'm, I'm, that, I'll, I'll explain. He was a gist stain of a person. <laughs> so it's really hard. Like, it, that's a gender based. You can't get away from that. That's what he was. No, I think if I stood over a sheet and just bled hard. I don't know. I could do it. Um, but I think, my point I, think being that- I think yours is more of a Miriam, a- Marion Abramoff. That artist that does oh, the period. Yes. Yeah. Like crazy where she slams her naked body into stuff. Ugh. She's pretty hardcore. Well, she does um, the, the blood paintings with menstrual blood and semen. It's the, uh, it's weird. The Jackson Paul. Yeah, no, she, she's pretty um, kooky. Yeah. So, but back to chivalry, I think yes. that, you know, my view, my view of chivalry, and I think this isn't like, I'm married to a dude and I, I've actually, I love men so much. I've made two men with my lady body. Like I'm a big fan of, of males. And while I might want to smash the patriarchy, I don't want to do, I I would never be like part of the man hating feminist movement that in any way um, degraded my sons in the way that women have been degraded. Right. Like I want everybody's human to be recognized like across the board. So when it comes to this concept of, of chivalry. Um, I, I think it all averages like you pull seats out for me. I can do that myself. I'm strong enough to do it. But at the end of the day, you're probably not strong enough to have my period every month. Cause let me tell you, it freaking sucks and it hurts really bad. And so I have to do that from the time I'm 12 years old, my entire life, every single month, like I'm having to do stuff too, that you don't have to do. So at the end of the day, the least you can do is like buy me a cheeseburger and open a freaking door for me. That's not asking too much. Hell yeah. Well, that that's one of the things that's funny. My wife always tells me the same thing. You couldn't be me. I'm like, I don't want to be you. I'm cool. <laughs> I work in construction. So, you know, like I have to lift heavy things. My wife couldn't lift the things that I lift, you know, but that's our roles because I can't multitask like her. I mean, literally every day she's like, you're so bad at multitasking. I'm like, I know it's biological. <laughs> Well, and I would say this is why America is kind of behind. I listened to this study, which you're going to think this isn't related at first, but it was talking about in other countries how they look at what a kid's strengths are, like in elementary school, right? And so they'll say, okay, you're like a a four at math and a seven at, uh, you know, English. So rather than focusing on the four that they're bad at, they're like, you're just not going to be a math person. Sorry. And instead they focus at that seven and they bring it up to a 10. They focus on these strengths. That's why you have like these crazy Romanian gymnasts and like Chinese gymnasts, right. That like went to just acrobat camp or whatever, when they were three and never saw their families again. So I'm not saying it's all great, but at the end of the day, like they're kind of onto something when you focus on strengths and make them better rather than saying everybody, uh, you know, should focus on this one particular thing. And then we're all just kind of like remedial and average. Right. And so I think that that is what has definitely happened when it has come to feminism. We focus so hard on having the right to do something. We stop saying like, 
is it right for us to do this? Is it good for us to do this? Is it good, you know, as a whole for women to, you know, embrace pornography or sex work? Like those are two of my big ones that I actually think have made women more objectifiable um, along with abortion than anything else. But we're so effing focused on like the right to do it that we never actually said like, okay, but is this actually good for us? And I think that, um, that's where we've, we've lost so much. And rather than focusing on the fact that like our bodies are freaking amazing and we're capable of doing amazing things with them, it has become something that is almost viewed with like a level of resentment by our culture, you know, and it's seen as, as a weakness and a liability, which is a damn shame. Yeah, I totally agree. Well, I mean, you look at the the problems that men are having with intimacy because of porn and things like that and the developmental retardation they're hitting where they're unable to become the kind of man they should be and I'm not blame I'm blaming this on the whole thing, right? Especially men. But because they don't take responsibility, and I think abortion pl- does play a part in this, they don't have to take responsibility anymore. You throw a condom on, you do, you turn into that Jersey show guy, Shore guy, and that's cool Harry. now. And it's scary. Oh, it actually went silent there for a minute. Oh, sorry about that. You, you're back now. It looks like everything's good. But w- what I was saying is without having to take responsibility with, with abortion, even with birth control being used irresponsibly in, in cases for men, they, they use it, they abuse it is what I'm trying to say is that they've lost that, you know, I find a woman, we have kids, we build a family, we, we both do our part. I treat her fairly and that's gone because like, oh no, I bang as many girls as I can. And if, you know, 400 bucks or 600 bucks abortion, I'm good. I'm free. And it's really creating this perverse, like mouth formation of men. They really are becoming the patriarchy because I think you have to separate masculinity from patriarchy and masculinity. I totally agree. Patriarchy is. And I totally, I totally agree. And I think, you know, that's that toxic masculinity even people talk about. And I think sometimes they, they get into this. I, I, I don't know. Yeah, no, I'm with you. I think that hookup culture and, um, pornography especially the fact that everybody gives their kid like a phone now at nine years old and they have access to the most obscene things on the internet the most dehumanizing and objectifying things on the internet right and so this isn't even like your dad's playboy that was just like a naked lady that someone was staring at or you know the sears underwear catalog like (laughs) the jc penny catalog (laughs) right i mean this is hardcore dehumanization and degradation of women in most cases. And there is a, there's actually this great feminist called Gail Dines. She does a Ted talk that is not for the faint of heart, but it is so telling because she talks about how violent so many aspects of pornography are and how you have, um, producers now that actually put on extra mascara on the women so that when they are gagging and the tears are streaming down their face, it's more visible. And if you look at the faces that these women are making, like a lot of them are in pain. A lot of them are also completely, you know, numbed out by drugs and alcohol in the first place in order to be able to tolerate this level of dehumanization. And that's why you have such a high suicide rate and addiction rate in this industry where women are just being like disposed of. But the sad thing is like, Nowadays, we call equality the fact that women are viewing porn just as much as men are. They're having the same level of porn addiction as men are. And the 
irony is that this is called sex positivity because this is this is what frustrates me because I am very very pro sex and I'm um, very you know even with my own children very pro information and let's talk about this I want you to have a very healthy understanding of human sexuality and what pornography and the hookup culture does it actually cheapens that inner interaction it makes it um, nothing more really than masturbation with another person because there is no like you know soul transcending moment where you're having like a true connection with somebody, you're just using another person as friction. And actually, okay, so you're Catholic, so I can tell you this. One of the best quotes that I ever have ever heard when it comes to pornography is by Pope John Paul II, I guess, or one of your popes. Um, And he says, the problem with pornography is not that it shows too much, it's that it shows too little. And I think that that is the, the very best explanation I've ever heard for this. Like you are showing everything. And at the same time, you're almost showing nothing. Like it has made it so unsexy. Like it's made sex so unsexy. Yeah. And so anyway, whenever I speak at colleges though, I always just say, yeah, there, there's this, uh, there's this great speaker. And this is what he says. Cause I don't want people to be like, Oh, a Pope, give me a break. But yeah. I mean, when you're right on the money, you're right on the money. And he got that one, right. It has ruined sex for so many people. Um, and then, yeah, the levels of erectile dysfunction and everything else we have, the levels of women, I think it's created this toxic stew, uh, especially for young girls that you grow up in this society where women are so sexualized. Every single billboard is like tits being used to, you know, sling hot wings. Like it's, (laughs) you are taking something amazing about us and cheapening it and making it, you know, just an object to be consumed. And So girls grow up with this message that that's what their power is. Their power is their sexuality. And I think that's why for me, starting New Wave Feminist was so important because I bought into that message hook, line, and sinker and, you know, became sexually active at 15. By 16, had that unplanned pregnancy. And I, I just remember feeling like this poor kid having to have me as a mom, like women are so broken nowadays because we are constantly, you know, back to that feminist publication, Cosmopolitan Magazine. I always talk about how the first 20 pages are women that you could never look like, like they're so airbrushed. Even those women don't look like that. You have another 20 pages of crap you can buy in an attempt to look like these women, right? Like, and, and again, reiterating this message constantly that your skin's not clear enough. Your teeth aren't white enough. Your hair is not pretty enough. You're not skinny enough. You know, you're not enough. You're not enough. You're not enough. And then the last 20 pages are, okay, if you've bought all this crap and you're still not enough, at least here's 69 ways to give a great blowjob. So someone might love you. Yeah. Well, this is the message that giving to women that's so toxic when you mash it up with a culture of males now that are addicted to pornography that can then turn around and use that brokenness to exploit girls. Well, I think one of the things that um, for me as a Catholic, right? When I was a kid, teenager, I got really into the theology of sexuality because I I always didn't like the puritanical approach that American Christians have towards sexuality. I think it's toxic and beyond damaging. I actually think that that's what gave, yeah, I think it gave birth to the sexual revolution, honestly, and researching the religious right. And some of this stuff has really made me convinced of that. And I don't think that it was a good thing though, because if you read old writings about sexuality, right. In, in Christianity, um, 
it's it's viewed as this beautiful gift, this wonderful thing. It's the most amazing connection between two people. It's just lauded. And then it became a dirty thing that you don't talk about, you don't look at, you don't think of, right? And I think that it displaced its purpose because instead of being something that you strive for and even, you know, in the traditional Christian sense of finding a monogamous relationship and a marriage and all that, there is a benefit that because it was so important and made the sex so special and wonderful. And then to demonize it and treat it like a dirty word, strip that away from it. And they turned it into this thing where I think a lot of young people go, they go have sex for the first time at a party, right? They've been told all this stuff about sex is bad, sex is bad. And they're like, this is great. And so instead of having this appreciation for it, where like it's this beautiful thing that I'm going to share with as few people as possible, right? Instead, they have this mindset of, oh, it's bad. And then they do it and they're like, well, it's great. So what the hell was all that? You know, and then they just throw the baby out with the bathwater. Everything I learned is stupid. It's ridiculous. And I think it's been a huge disservice because for me, that's to me, sex is not a bad thing. It's awesome. I love it. You know, I have a beautiful wife. I enjoy my life. And I think that sex is great. But I think that so many Christians, it's a dirty word, even in marriage, you know, and I think that that's a big problem, you know, because in this country, so many people abide by that when they go, oh, I don't, what the hell? I think that it's really created this murky morass of confusion. I, I totally agree. I think you have, you know, the, the church culture that tells you, um, you know, wait till marriage, wait till marriage. And, and like you said, also putting these very kind of repressive thoughts in our head that it, it is bad and, and purity is so important and a woman, you know, being defiled, like, I, I don't know. I think that message is really difficult for women too, because people slip up and it's, it's likely oh, to yeah. happen. And then she feels so worthless. Right. But then the flip side is you have a, a whole um, secular culture, which is saying, you know, marriage is where sex goes to die. Like once oh, you're married, oh, uh, good luck getting anything then, like that's when you're not going to have sex. And so I think trying to be, you know, in, in my version of, of trying to be sex positive, I want people to be having as much really great, hot, wonderful sex as possible. But I do think that that has to come with a foundation of trust. And when you don't have that, because it is this hookup culture, or it is, you know, if we do get pregnant, then what? Um, or if you, you know, are constantly performing, which I would say, I don't know if men know that there are so many young teen women that everything is a performance nowadays, you oh, know, because totally. the sexting and the porn and everything. And so, and she's consuming Cosmo nonstop. That's telling her how to be like the ultimate sex kitten. And she knows she's competing with this guy's porn addiction. And so it really has nothing to do with her, you know, being satisfied or having a good orgasm or anything like that. It's so much more about, um, you know, this performance. And again, we're supposed to be in this like, you know, post feminine mystique era where women are having really good sex and taking control of that as well. But ironically, the sexual revolution, I think has cheapened a lot of that where women actually, they aren't. Because at the end of the day, I knew this guy, he used to say this, oh my gosh, it pissed me off so much when he would say it, but I hate that it's kind of right. He always said, um, you know, men give 
love to get sex. Women give sex to get love. Yeah. That's and as much as my feminist brain doesn't want to accept that, there is some level of truth to it. And I don't know if it's biological. I'm sure it has to do with like, I don't know, just the way we developed for millennia. But it is true. And I think for women, so much of our sexuality is up in our head. And it's having that connection. It's feeling safe and secure. I mean, after all, we are the ones who are going to bear, you know, the burden of pregnancy. Yeah. And our bodies are the ones that are much more vulnerable when it comes to um, sex, not just because of pregnancy, but because, you know, even our own strength, even the fact that we can be overpowered and be raped and things like this, like it, it's just a completely different dynamic than men have. And I wish that we were talking more about that within the feminist movement and less about, can I take my shirt off and walk down the street? Yeah. Well, and I think one of the things is that, you know, I think that's one of the beautiful things about women too. What you said, where they give sex to get love. You, they have more control over their sexuality in rea in all reality. I, I guys are much more myopic in their focus. You know, all the scientific studies show this and they tend to be less in tune with emotion. They're not as sensitive. They're not as intuitive. They don't take people's emotions into account in the same way and in the same way as women. And that's a huge positive for women. Because you guys are able to tap into a huge part of being a human that men struggle with far more. You know, it's a, an emotional awareness. Like my wife has it for our children, our two boys, that I don't have. You know, I'm more like, you did something wrong, you're in trouble. You know, or you did something good, at a boy. You know, but for her, she catches the nuances that I just pull right over. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and I would say that, you know, you're kind of onto something when it comes to, again, you know, we're, we're equal, but we are not the same. And so yeah. looking at just the way psychologically and biologically we deal with different instances, there was this, um, it was on This American Life. It, it ran 15 years ago and they actually just reran it recently and it blew my mind, but it was an entire episode about testosterone and talking and you know again I've, i have a 17 year old son and then i have a six-year-old son and so this is a world that i can't experience but getting this insight into it was fascinating to me and so one of the you know it was like a four-part episode and one of the things they talked about was a woman who was um or no i guess it, so it was a natal female who transitioned to male and when she was female, she went to an all women's college. She was this, you know, rabid feminist, like this big feminist activist. And then she transitioned to being a male and was given all of this testosterone during this process. And so he was talking about how horrified he was at his feminist self for what the, the filth that was just going through his mind constantly every single time he looked at a woman. So, you know, he, in one part, he talks about being on the subway and he could see a woman who he was, there was nothing attractive about her in any way, except for like her ankles. And he would sit and just fetishize this woman about her ankles and just to having sex with her ankles or whatever for like <laughs> 10 minutes on the train because of this testosterone. And then he would be walking down the street and he would see a woman and he would try to look at her face and not her boobs. And, you know, as they were getting closer and closer and then as she would pass, he would think, 
do not turn around and look at her butt. Do not turn around and don't look at this woman's <laughs> ass. Like, don't turn around. And every single time he would do it and he would get so mad at himself. And I just thought that was the most fascinating thing in the world, um, you know, to see this insight from somebody who has never experienced it, but then suddenly is, you know, living as a man through testosterone. And there was one of the other bits on there was a man who was actually on some medication that deprived him of testosterone. And so they didn't realize that that's what had happened to him, but it depleted all of his testosterone. And he said he felt like he lost his whole identity. Like he didn't know who he was and he could sit and stare at a white wall for just six hours and not think anything. And he said he would be walking down the sidewalk and he would just, everything he saw was beautiful. And he would say, oh, look at that, you know, log. That's beautiful. Look at the grass. That's beautiful. Look at this dead squirrel that's been run over. That's beautiful. And he goes, but he had no emotional attachment to it. Um, it was just, he saw it for what it was. He could understand the inherent beauty, but he had no emotional reaction to it. And he said this line that like, will never leave me. He said he, that that's the first time he thought maybe he kind of understood how God feels, you know, just seeing everything for what it truly is um, in the grand scheme of things. And it was all because he didn't have testosterone. And so again, you know, just, just this one biological difference between males and females does make such a huge difference. And when we throw that out and we say, everybody's the same and, you know, here's toxic masculinity and, and mansplaining and all of these other, you know, words that are put on it without understanding um, the actual science behind it, the biology behind it, and having the ability to empathize and say, not all men are rapists, you know, not all men because they have these urges, like they have to understand a different level of self-control than women do. And they should be taught that early and they should be held responsible. You know, I, I also don't think we go to the point where we say, oh, boys will be boys and we make it acceptable. But yeah. well, I, I, I do I, think the beauty of... The, the groups that I get to talk to, like, I'll be real honest, most of the time are pro-life groups that have me out. And so it's not feminist groups. It's, it's pro-life groups. Okay. And realizing that I am getting to talk to an audience of men that a lot of feminists, you know, I recently heard Jessica Valenti speak at SMU. They rented out this huge auditorium, like 40 people showed up. It was all people who were already in the feminist club to hear her talk about sexual objectification. So it was a lot of preaching to the choir. And the benefit of what I'm doing, because I have the pro-life message, is I get invited out to groups that are male and female, and I'm able to take this message to them of you know, what is rape culture? I think a lot of people laugh that off, but they don't necessarily realize that women don't feel safe all the time. And we do have a lot of fears about being physically overpowered. And we do, um, you know, need to be teaching men not to rape and what consent looks like. And luckily, I think I've just, I've been blessed that I'm in this kind of real weird niche spot. Um, where we're able to have conversations like that with people who probably wouldn't normally be having those conversations. Well, I think when it comes to like rape, rape culture, I think one of the, it gets so blown out of proportion, you know, the way it's used, oh, you know, they were drinking at a party, so it's a rape. She regretted it, so it's a rape. And you go, well, if you add everybody into that, you're not going to be able to solve any problems because then it just becomes ridiculous, right? But I think the other part of that too is when when you demonize masculinity across the board and then you have the, and then you're giving guys an excuse to act like the Jersey Shore douchebag, you can't be that surprised by the negative results that come from that. You know what I mean? Like 
if you're not teaching men uh, virtue and chivalry, they're not going to act with it. You know, and for me, that's one of the things that's frustrating is that when I hear rape culture, right? To me, it's uh, usually, you know, it's like a Nita Sarkeesian talking about it or somebody like that. And of course, it's very exaggerated and it's very surface level. It's just, you know, these broad generalizations. And I think that that doesn't help anything because I do believe that men are in a very bad place, especially with the way that they view women, they treat women at this current time in culture. I don't think it's good. I think that it's actually bad for everybody. And, but it's so hard when you have such extreme, uh, you know, terminology and broad strokes describing everything, you're not able to have a conversation because everybody's just screaming at each other. And I don't think that that's not a dialogue. That's an argument at best, right? It's Well, you end up watering down, right? Like the very message that you're pr- trying to portray, which is, you know, <clears throat> what what is consent? And if a yeah. woman says no, I mean, like that's consent and empower women to use their voices and, <clears throat> you know, create safe environments. But, um, I do think like someone was talking the other day about the fact that now um, kids who are sexting, you know, underage can yeah. be caught, prosecuted, and then have to be- register as sex offenders. Which you know, is insane. it's insane yeah. because what it does then is the whole, you know, idea behind a sex offender registry is so that we know who predators are. We know where the danger is. And when you water down an entire system by just throwing anybody in there, then it makes it a lot easier for the predators to kind of hide out. Right. And so I think that again, a lot of it is being able to have open dialogue where people don't feel like they're just going to be shut down. Um, I had written a piece a while ago about how I had been, um, basically date raped, um, which is, you know, a word that in feminist circles you can't even say anymore. Like rape is rape is rape. But then you also hear them talk about, you know, someone, what was the, oh, something so stupid. Like somebody farted on a subway, right? And they were like, that's, it was the same as rape. Like it was fart rape or whatever. I mean, stupid, stop, man. Like nobody's doing themselves any favors about this. But when I wrote the, the piece about it and I was talking about how basically I, I, was kissing this guy and um you know i was i was comfortable with some of the stuff that was happening but then he started undressing me and i said no multiple times and i you know tears were coming down my face and again you have to wonder like for most guys that would be a real boner killer but is it because we have pornography now where tears streaming down women's faces like they have biologically been trained to override that and that's something that should be arousing rather than a red flag not to do it and Anyway, so I sent it to um, a couple people to help me edit it. And one of them was a good friend of mine who, you know, had been in a frat in college and, you know, kind of did the thing you were talking about, like everybody's drinking and whatever. And he said, after reading this, I'll be honest, it made me wonder if I've ever raped anyone. And that to me was horrifying. Um, And it immediately I went and had a conversation with my son about that, you know, and said, like, this is what consent looks like. Like, you need to make sure that... Um, you never put a woman in this position. And again, you know, like, like we've kind of mentioned being in a relationship where you trust the other person, um, you know, 
I, I, it's funny because whenever they talk about like alcohol and stuff, I'm like, I feel like I've probably raped my husband before because I've definitely been like two <laughs> bottles of wine in, right? And, but again, you have that, you have that trust, you have that consent that's already been given because you know the person. And so even if I'm two bottles of wine in, like it's still like, we know that I'm safe and I'm secure and that's very different than an yeah. assault. But when you don't know the person and, you know, you don't know if they're over their limit for how much they've consumed where they're pretty much incapable of giving you know informed consent at this point and stuff like that that's kind of where this problem enters and so but again if you say anything about that or try to have a logical conversation then you know you're slut shaming and you're not sex positive and yeah it's it's really <laughs> it's, it's hard to be a feminist these days well, they've turned everything into an oxymoron. It's like you can't say one thing one way or one thing the other. It becomes this this loop, you know. It's although I I will point out the irony in everything that's gone on and where it's come back around to is like the traditional Christian ethic, you know, of wait for marriage and this kind. It solves all those problems. It's kind of ironic that it's like are you guys saying we should go back over here? Like, is that where this is circling to at some point? Because if you're married to a person and it's a healthy relationship, then all those things are kind of a given, right? So it's kind of a weird, without order and structure and without, and I'm not saying you have to be Christian, but I'm just saying without a moral ethical standard and without some kind of structure to the way that we teach our children, it's not surprising that we have this problem where nobody knows what to do. And I think for young guys, it's, it's really tragic because like you pointed out, you know, they don't even understand. They don't under, they might not even understand. Some of them are just assholes. And I mean, if a girl starts crying and says, no, that guy can go fuck himself. I kick his ass. I'm sorry. That's just, I, there's no point at which that becomes acceptable to me. But I think that the lack of parenting, the lack of structure is playing a big part in this because you have these young people going out into the world looking for the hedonistic lifestyle, the pleasure, you know, if we make a baby, we'll abort it, you know, we'll take care of it, whatever. And you get this consequence free life that doesn't have the same meaning. Well, and how much of it is built also on that instant gratification, right? Which takes us back to porn culture where even if... You know, I mean, I wish that, you know, just being in monogamous relationships would kind of solve all of it. But at the same time, like I've just seen, even in very Christian communities, didn't they just do that study where they showed how it's like the Bible Belt has the most porn searches? I, I mean, I think that, that there's... I, I, uh, let me just interject. That's why I said the traditional Christian ethic. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was specifically avoiding America because they're... The track records be low stellar. And I guess what I'm saying is like, take it away from being Christian, right? Just that ethic, right? If you remove the religious aspect and the ethic of you, you treat people as yourself, right? You love others as you love yourself. You give your, you lay down your life for others. That's why really the solution is kind of this thing that New Wave Feminists is always focused on, like human dignity, understanding the human dignity in every single person. Because if you see the human dignity in someone, it makes it so much 
more difficult for you to objectify them. And I would say, you know, with the whole Me Too movement and what we see happening with, you know, I like I love Louis C.K. I think he's hilarious. And so when all that stuff came out about him just masturbating in front of women, which I think is so weird and like, who does that? And that's strange. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, like, well, what have we, you know, he has spoken publicly multiple times during his standup about, you know, porn. Like the guy's definitely a porn addict. So what's no, no. the difference? He lit, he's, he's talked about doing that before. <laughs> right, right. Like he had talked about that in his standup. I, I, when they came out with that story, I expected a rape. Cause I was like, wait, this is, he talks about this all yeah, the time. Not, like this like, is part of his thing. In it. And so when you look at, like, I, I don't think a lot of men understand even the, the number of women who have had, you look over and a guy's got his dick out and he's masturbating somewhere while he's looking at you. Like that happens to us pretty yeah. frequently. I mean, most women I know have two or three stories like that. Right. And so we're like, oh, you know, end, end rape, end rape culture. But then nobody's willing to say, okay, do you not see how pornography basically is programming men to do exactly that, to look at a woman, to consume her, not to see her human dignity, not to have any type of like urge to, you know, care about her or respect her or protect her or anything like that. All it is, is I'm going to look at her. I'm going to gratify myself while consuming her. And then you take away the screen and now they're out doing it in the real world and we're horrified by it. But at the same time, you're okay when they're doing it in, you know, a dark bedroom like why why is one yeah. okay and one isn't and i think that that's where men have kind of been set up a little bit because so much of the stuff in this porn culture that um you know we live in where it's just viewed as completely acceptable and by the time you're 10 11 years old you have a good you know healthy porn addiction and then suddenly um you know that spills out into your actual actions which of course it does why wouldn't it and then everybody's upset about it um so i think you really it becomes one of those things where you have to nip it in the bud and say that woman that you're sitting here jerking off to has human dignity. Um, the person that you're doing it to in real life has human dignity. The girl you hooked up with who, you know, kept passing out while y'all were having sex at that party last week, she was so drunk. She has human dignity. And I think that is something that's so hard for people to understand these days because we have made everyone into an object, everyone into a piece of property in our attempts to keep women from being property. You know, look at all these other ways that um, we haven't made good on that. We, we are still dehumanizing um, not just the unborn, but women. And then, and then now we're dehumanizing men in so many ways as well. Like it's just become this rampant widespread um, issue. Yeah, I, I agree a hundred percent. Well, I think one of the problems is the selfishness that's been bred in the culture over the last, I mean, really since world war two, 1950s, it started maybe in particular, and it wasn't transitioning from a great place. You know, you had a lot of uh, abuse and there was a lot of bad things going on in this country, but I think that in throwing the baby out with the bath water, right? like moving so far away, you went from a structure to more chaos than without striking that balance. If that makes sense. Like, I think the fact that it's, you know, you can't judge anybody. You can't hold anybody to a higher standard. That's, that's not good. You know, like I I'm thankful that my parents were hard on me because it made me learn how to view my life. And I'm not perfect. 
by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, everybody will tell you I am, <laughs> but I'll promise I'm not. Um, but it, it really is, you know, I had strict parents. I had friends that ha- did not have strict parents. Um, life turned out a lot better for me than a lot of my friends. And in part because I knew how to control myself. You know, I, I was able to deny myself pleasure, gratification, enjoyment, parties, those kind of things. And not because I'm Superman. I was scared of my parents. <laughs> you know, it was, it was a simple, banal impulse. I'm like, I don't want to get in trouble. My friends didn't have that though. So they got into that trouble. And I mean, I have some friends that got into bad trouble and it was partly because they didn't have fear or respect for some, some order. Right. And I think that that, I don't know if you're familiar with Jordan Peterson, but he talks about this a lot about order and structure. And those are good things. And I think that like everybody being okay with their 12 year old whacking off to, you know, rape porn. I, it's so insane. I mean, that's not healthy. That's not good. It one, it's breaking their mind towards sex. They'll never view a woman as something beautiful and wonderful. They'll view her as his dirty little slut or whore or whatever. And that is such a bad place to be. And for girls, I mean, I've watched a lot of, I have, there's 14 kids in my family. I'm the oldest. I'm 31. And I've watched my younger siblings and their friends deal with this, you know, struggle through this. And just from the time I was 20, uh-oh, and we're back from the abyss of technical difficulties. Um, so we talked about structure and those things. Um, I had one quick last question for you on abortion which was the argument I've been hearing a lot of because it seems to not be so cool to argue the baby's humanity anymore is the bodily autonomy. And I was wondering what your thoughts are on that. Cause I did like a 5,000 word back and forth with a lady and she was just insulting pretty much calling me a male dumbass. Um, And I was just trying to have a reasonable conversation, but it was all about, bodily autonomy. What are your thoughts on that? Did you, did you start using all caps? Cause that's what you have to do. If it was on the internet. <laughs> no, I used to troll people very hard in the paint and I had a lot of fun with that, but it wasn't super effective. So now I try to just be reasonable. Yeah, it's not. And what happens is then those people, I end up being the next pro-lifer they talk to and they hate my guts because of you. So I actually ask people all the time, like, just don't be weird, man. Like, don't be weird. Don't create whatever that weird, like Facebook argument is, which I always joke that we could have like an algorithm by this point where like you make this point, this pops up, then this study, and then this studies, you know, to contest it. Like it, I don't think anyone changes their mind on the internet from anything ever. Um, when it comes to bodily autonomy, the logical question would be, when does one gain bodily autonomy? When do you get it? I would argue that the moment your body first exists is when your bodily autonomy should exist. And obviously, this is a very nuanced way to look at it. But, you know, when people say my body, my choice, well, it's not your body, it's inside your body. But it's not your body. This is a different human being. And they certainly didn't consent to existing. They didn't consent 
to being torn limb by limb apart. You know, they didn't consent to anything that was happening here. And 99% of the time you did. You engaged in a procurative act that was then, um, you know, maybe you didn't want to be pregnant really, really hard. You didn't want it, but guess what? It happened anyway, because you were engaging in an act that can make a new person. So then why should that new person be the scapegoat and have their life violently ended for the sake of your bodily autonomy? Um, and, and, you know, this is... I actually view it as a success because years ago, people wouldn't even talk about the bodily autonomy of the unborn. And that was something we really kind of drove home was when does their bodily autonomy exist? And we believe it should happen at the moment of conception. Um, And I was reading this heartbreaking article in the nation from a father with a child with Down syndrome, arguing for why children like his son, even though he believes his son has inherent dignity, children like his son should, should, we should have the choice to eliminate them, to kill them, right? And it was just this disgusting, sad article. And you kind of wonder like, about this man himself, how, how he's able to justify this. Because at the end of the day, you see this, uh, the mental gymnastics surrounding abortion get people twisted into all types of weird pretzels, you know, where the, the, the woman who, who cut the lady open off Craigslist, remember? And oh, gosh. she was going to be charged with that, with, with homicide because the child didn't live. And you saw Planned Parenthood in NARAL basically saying, no, we can't do that in this case because that might humanize the unborn yeah. child and give them rights. And then we would have to, you know, so they paint themselves into these corners constantly when it comes to bodily autonomy. But in this article from this, this father, at one point he uses the term, um, we must prioritize bodily autonomy. And that is moving the needle. Like we're moving it because now they're at least willing to acknowledge that the unborn person does have bodily autonomy. Well, that's actually, so with, I made the same points as you, you know, it, it, the person engaged in it. And like I said, I don't really troll him. I troll some people that truly deserve it, but not really on the pro-life topic. Right. Um, and I, what I've done when I talk to them is I go, okay, well, somebody and get all the points you hit, right? Somebody engaged in the act, the baby didn't have a choice. You know, this isn't their fault. They have their bodily autonomy. But what I found striking was she didn't argue that she argued that the mother's bodily autonomy is superior. Essentially. She wouldn't admit that that's what she was saying, even though it's literally what she was saying. But it was, I was like, so then how about slavery, right? If the bodily autonomy of a, of a certain person is above that of another, th- at what point does the bodily autonomy of one person give them the right to violate another's? Right. You either have inherent human dignity or you don't. And yeah. once we start viewing uh, you know, any human being as less than human based on what we decide to put on them as their their value, right? Their wantedness. Um, that's a very slippery slope. And it's something that when we look throughout history, we keep repeating this time and time again, whether it's, you know, um, Jews or Blacks or, or any, any other um, person, human being, 100% as human as the rest of us that we have said, yeah. because of this one thing, they are not worthy of human dignity and protection. And it has always been a horrific outcome and always been something we look back on and say, my God, how did we ever let this happen? And yet 
here we are again. Like again, the mental gymnastics that go into justifying, um, you know, killing an unborn human being, uh, based on the fact, you know, they, they always want to try to find these kind of, um, qualifiers that don't quite make them human, right? Well, well, they don't have sentience yet, or they don't have, um, you know, a heartbeat yet, or, or whatever their their marker is that they've decided is very important. And once they reach this marker, once they're viable outside of the womb, that's the one that gets me the most because literally we have made such huge advances in medical technology that I'm always like, sure, can we go with that one? Can I get that in writing that that's the one we're going to go with? Because that's the goalpost that's constantly moving. And here in a decade, we will probably have, you know, I don't know, crazy robot wombs or whatever that can sustain life for a child, uh, you know, from the moment of conception. And so, but the, but the marker's always moving. But the thing that I found really interesting was I recently challenged um, people on our page, the pro-choicers who say, well, I don't believe human rights should be gained until viability. Okay. So now we're talking like 24 weeks, even though we've seen 21 week olds live. Um, but okay. 24 weeks. Let's stick with that. Well, then I actually had a friend who was born at, he held the world record. He was born at 20, 20 or 21 weeks. And he didn't have half of his rib cage. He had a metal plate. That's amazing. That's but I mean that's what I'm saying. Like this constantly, like it's it's a moving goalpost. But okay, so even if we agree 24 weeks, then are they outraged by the fact that Canada has no abortion laws and you can abort up until you know 10 minutes before the mother gives birth? Yeah. Like I think these same pro-choicers. Finally, we found something we can agree on. Let's get a law in Canada. Let's start protecting. You know, if you've decided humanity starts at 24 weeks when you know the magical fairy dust happens that that gives them some sort of bodily autonomy. Um, then, then let's start fighting for it across the board. But the problem is you don't find a lot of consistency. And that's why we follow something called the consistent life ethic, which is a belief that human beings should be free from violence for the duration of their lifetime. And I am, you know, raised, raised in Texas and always kind of had to be conservative because of my pro-life views and chronologically, like that's the very first right, right? You know, is, is the right to life. And so I always kind of, Felt that I had to um, vote that way, but I, I've become an independent in the last few years, and it was the most liberating thing in the world to become an independent because now I can see the inconsistencies on both sides and in almost every political candidate, and I can challenge them and I can say like, no, if you say that you believe you know this, this, and this, be consistent with what you're arguing. And I have found that so many people because they are um, locked into some political party or even like a a religious institution, they end up defending stuff that I think even they don't agree with all the time. Right. Because like, well, this is, this is what I've been told is, you know, this is how we believe certain things, but consistency is key. And I am all for bodily autonomy. That's why I, would argue that my feminism is the most supreme version of feminism because of the fact that I believe bodily autonomy should start from the moment your body first exists. Um, I, I, I mean, try to out feminist that. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Well, I think, I think the ideological spectrum is so narrow really to two channels, you know, and then you have your wacky green party and whatever. No, I'm not saying they're wacky, but that's how everybody views them. Right. If you're anything but a Republican, down the line or a Democrat down the line, then you're just a weirdo because you're, you're turning your back on what you should believe in. And I think that's idiotic because like, for example, I'm 
I guess what you would kind of call a conservative, but I think drugs should be legalized. I'm not, I don't think the government should be so involved in our life. Um, you know, gay marriage, I'm Catholic. Obviously, I don't believe in it, right, from a spiritual religious perspective, but I don't have any interest in the government telling us how to do marriage. So if a Pentecostal church or a secular organization marries two people, I don't care. You know, it doesn't doesn't hurt me. So why would I want the government to force them to do something? Because you always have to remember the tide may shift and someday they may be forcing me to do something I don't want to do. You know, so I think government being so people being so stuck in if I believe this one thing, I have to take everything else with it is one of the biggest. I think one of the problems the pro-life movement has had for years is that if you don't wholesale by the agenda, then you can't, they don't really accept you. And I think that's one of the reasons that you and Albany have been so cool to see. Oh, well, thank you. I I mean, yeah, I would argue that the fact, I think one of the most dangerous things that ever happened was abortion becoming this partisan issue because it allowed for politicians to offer lip service on both sides. You know, I'm pro-choice, I'm pro-life, but not actually do anything about it. And other than just saying you're pro-life, um, really there's there's not a whole lot of accountability and the irony is that i actually have quite a few liberal leanings the older that i get um and but i've always been even when i was conservative i was like a bleeding heart conservative and so i've always kind of had more of those um those leanings and so for me it seamlessly fits in that they would be anti-abortion like a party that claims to fight for the marginalized and the oppressed I mean, you don't get more marginalized and oppressed than the unborn fetus. You know, we talk about all of these different groups that they're voiceless and powerless and statusless. Like, okay, come on. Like the the unborn child is literally the most voiceless, powerless and statusless member of of society right now. And yet they are the ones who justify um, legalizing abortion, which, of course, then creates an industry that preys on minorities most of the time, low income, vulnerable women. um, so that they can exploit them. And if you really want to get, you know, kind of conspiratorial about it, but really not even that much, it's much cheaper for the government to subsidize a $500 abortion for an unplanned pregnancy than it is to subsidize a $10,000 labor and delivery or 18 years of government aid beyond that point. So I think, you know, the government has an absolute vested interest in keeping abortion legal in order to, um, you know, basically eliminate the expenses that they would see within uh, particular communities. And, and, you know, you can then back that up by saying, look at where most abortion clinics are. And so it's not that far of a leap. And I think that's where I become very, you know, um, anti-government in a lot of ways, because I, I just, you have to follow the money and you see where it leads you. Yeah. Well, I think that old axiom, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely is so true. And I think one of the things we see, look at the black community, right? The, the, I don't like calling it the liberal side because a true liberal probably is more where I land on most things, but the progressive, I call them progressives. Now the Democrat wing, you know, the party line is more of where I feel they land on most things. And they talk so much about the black community, right? And helping the black community. And yet you look at these democratic run cities like Baltimore, Chicago, Ferguson, uh, Flint, Michigan, 
very black communities. And they put, they take all the fathers from the home, all the men from the community by trumped up drug charges or just bullshit, you know, insane. Why are you putting these guys in jail for having a joint? And then the women don't have men around and then they have clinics. They're told to use them. And so you see the abortion rates in the black community insanely high. Now, what if you really cared about a community so much, why would you want the men to be gone and the babies to die? It To me, it's just, it's so disingenuous. And of course- well, it, it goes even beyond abortion, right? Like you have the maternal and fetal mortality rate are even higher because, <clears throat> you know, once violence is introduced into the healthcare system, you have all types of other issues that follow after the fact. And there's a documentary um, on Netflix called 13th about the 13th Amendment and- Yes. It is one of the best ways of, you know, kind of explaining systematic oppression and what has happened to black communities. Um, and it was just, I mean, it's incredibly eye opening. But you have people like Tanahasi Coates, who talks a lot about in 1973, that's when they introduced the prison industrial complex because yes. you had, you know, the summer of 69, you had all this success in the civil rights movement. And just like with slavery, um, you know, once. Once we abolished slavery, there were still certain ways that you could, um, you know, basically keep slaves, right? And yeah. one of them was uh, through imprisonment. And so then in 73, you had this huge boom in the prison industrial complex and us um, incarcerating black males. And I'm just, every single time I hear that, I'm like, keep following what else happened in 73 what else happened in 73 yep. i mean that's when you had abortion introduced for black females and yep. so it is this well, golden calf of the left where they are not willing to to talk about it well and then you have the cia bringing in drugs to fund the uh sandinistas and stuff down in south america i mean it was this is the, I always say we live in a one party system that does lip yeah. ser service to two parties. Like the Republicans and Democrats are not different. Look at immigration with immigration. You have all these Mexicans. I grew up next door to illegals. Some of my best friends were illegal, right? I love the guys. They were not the same as me as far as their status in this country. They weren't, they were second class. Their parents made $5 an hour working in the field, 10 hours a day. They worked their asses off. They were great people. But because of the the Republican need for big business and the Democrat need for, let's say, uh, lower class permanently placed, they don't give them a, an a real opportunity for upward mobility. Well, they become vulnerable to exploitation. And yeah, yeah I mean, I, I completely agree. I think you've got two two sides that basically it's very symbiotic the way that they work together and so um again the the most radical thing i think that any of us could do and i'm i'm very hopeful that we're moving towards this because you saw you know after this last election so many conservatives kind of jump ship and so many people who are leaving both their political parties um at least millennials leaving their political parties and they want something new the most radical thing you could do is be a true independent and actually make these politicians, you know, earn your vote by doing something good for humanity and actually helping people and solving problems. 
Except, you know, I mean, that's the thing that I've just noticed, though, is we are so locked into this two party system. And whether it's social media or the news media channel, that's our flavor of news, right? Like, whatever we want, it is going to speak to us. And we live in these echo chambers where there's no dialogue and there's no conversation with people who are different than us. And I think one of the best things that I've been able to participate in the last few years is in panels of pro-life and pro-choice people getting together and talking. And so that internet conversation you have that devolves into all caps locks, we actually stand up and we modeled modeled the real thing for students so that they can understand the nuance of it. You know, I think it is – I think there are so many people who are so afraid of losing their – um, you know, pro-life belief because someone's going to have that one silver bullet gotcha thing, you know, that's suddenly going to make them um, pro-choice and they don't yeah. want that. So they'd rather just not engage in the conversation because they're scared that they aren't going to be able to answer it and it might convince them. I can tell you, like I used to go out all the time and say like, somebody make me pro-choice, please. I have purple hair. I have a septum ring. I have tattoos. I would fit in so much better on the other side. Um, I would be so much more popular on the other side than I am, you know, with all the little old blue haired ladies, um, even though we kind of have the same color hair. Uh, but I, I would fit in so much better. Like, tell, make me, make me pro-choice. I would love to be pro-choice. I would love not to have to think about abortion 24 seven, because let me tell you, it's a real freaking bummer. Um, yeah nobody ever could because at the end of the day, like I love science too hard and I am willing to accept that a new human being starts at conception and there's not some magical dust that happens at, you know, some weird subjective point that's going to make them a human being. And so I've never lost that. And I don't think most people will. And I think that the more that we dialogue with people on the other side, though, we'll at least understand what their concerns are. You know, our site's constantly talking about like uh, defunding Planned Parenthood. I'm an uninsured woman here in Texas, and we have a great program here um, because we did not take federal funding for Planned Parenthood. Uh, We had to diversify. And I think it's a great model actually for the rest of the nation because now we have something called Healthy Texas Women where I can type in my zip code and the size of my family and my income. And if I qualify for it, which if you're going to Planned Parenthood, odds are you would, then now I've got 60 doctors in the area that I can go see. Um, that's a huge, that's a huge boost to women, right? We had to get creative. We had to find a creative solution, but that didn't come from just seeing everything as black and white. And so I think that it's something where we have to understand. We, here's the irony. How often do we dehumanize the other side in an attempt to humanize the unborn child? Right? So we have to understand that most pro-choice people have the best intentions. They really do believe that they are doing what's best for women. And if we can look at them like human beings with hearts that actually care as well and try to understand where they're coming from, I think we can come up with so many more creative solutions because at the end of the day, this goes so far beyond just laws and at new wave feminists. That's what we always say. It's not about making abortion illegal. It's about making it unnecessary and unthinkable. We don't want a woman ever to feel like she has to choose violence against her child because that is not the natural reaction that any of us have. It's something that has been instilled in us because of circumstances. And so um, getting creative, spreading that message, I think is, is vital to the conversation. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Well, I've always said you can't blame the mothers like that. That's one thing that I've never liked, you know, baby killer signs and stuff. It's like, no, save that for the doctors. Doctors, I have a little less sympathy for because, you know, science, they know it, they know what they're doing. Um, 
uh, you know, and you even hear it from the doctors that have become pro-life. One guy performed, I think, 20,000 abortions. And when he finally realized what he was doing, you know, admitted it to himself, it, it, it destroyed him, you know, and yeah. the mothers, you, so many of these young girls, they don't even have a clue that, you know, everybody tells them it's okay. Everybody tells them it's the right choice. It's the thing to do. It's just a clump of cells. Don't worry about it. How can you blame them? You know, we should have compassion for them because they've just gone through something traumatic and horrible that they couldn't even expect to understand the circumstances of, you know, and I think to judge people is silly. You know, it's, it's not the way to go. And like you said, you know, I think we are seeing people start to come together and rise up, which is the government's worst fear, right? They like us divided. They like us fighting amongst ourselves because they're the bad guy. Even when you look at the black community or immigration, the bad guy aren't normal people. It's a government. It's their bad policy. It's their bad things. And I, I know we diverge on this, but love him or hate him. I think what Trump represented overall is going to be a good thing for the country because it was departure from the status quo. It wasn't Hillary. It wasn't a Bush. It wasn't Mitt Romney. You know, it wasn't one of these straight lights. He's a, he may be a buffoon. He may be an orange clown, but he's a straight talking kind of guy. Lies a lot too, but he isn't what they wanted. He isn't what those two parties wanted. He's the opposite. Now you might not agree with him. I don't agree with him on everything, but what he represents to me culturally and for the people of America is waking up. You know, maybe he's not your choice for that, but I, but the point I'm trying to get to isn't about him. It's about what America did there is they rejected the status quo. You know, Ben Carson was my favorite candidate from the get go. And he would have been the same kind of thing. CNN killed him. They went after him real hard. Right. But in that, I think we, and Bernie even represents the same thing. You know, he was not the establishment. I don't agree with Bernie on pretty much anything. Couple things. Yeah, foreign policy. I actually tend to agree with him. Him and Trump kind of weirdly line up on, on that. Not so much in practice, but in words. But what they didn't represent was what John McCain, Mitt Romney, Barack Obama, they all represented the status quo. They might have dressed it differently from time to time, but they represented the status quo. And I think that us moving away from that, whether it's on prison, drugs, marriage, religion, abortion in particular, and just coming together is what we need to see. And I think that I, I got to give you props. Albany Rose, is the same kind of thing is you guys are breaking the mold of what's expected. You're not coming from the traditional perspective and there's nothing wrong with the traditional perspective necessarily, but you're showing people, no, 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 you don't have to be, you know, a Mitt Romney, John McCain loving Republican to be pro-life. You can, you can be a never Trumper just like me. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And look, look at the conversation we've had, right? We don't, we obviously don't agree on Trump. Um, I think 4D chest, you think an idiot and that's okay. You know, it's okay. We don't have to hate each other over that. Right. You know, I think, I think maybe it's from me being from the South. My grandfather always had this saying, he said, 
you can disagree without being disagreeable. Yes. And that's the way I try to do absolutely everything. And because of that, I found that no matter where I'm traveling, you know, New York, California, Ireland, like people everywhere pretty much are the same. They're all good people trying to do their best. Right. And so we have, I would say most of the time, 90 to 95% of, of whatever it is in common, but we focus so hard on this, you know, five to 10% that just divides us. And I think it's one thing to, you know, dialogue about it. Like I said, find creative solutions, find compromises. That's really, really important. But because of our current climate and um, these echo chambers we've created for ourselves, I think it's gotten really dangerous because it's it's stopped us from working together to find solutions. And it's just everyone screaming at one another. So, oh, yeah, totally. yeah, let's disagree without being disagreeable. Well, well, for example, I'm going to throw something out there. Where do you think I'm from? Let's see. I already know that factoid that your parents are from Texas. So that would be my guess. Nope. I live in the Bay Area. I'm from California. Well, I know you're in California. You were like born and raised in California? Yeah, Yeah, my parents moved to Texas. You don't talk like the Californians on Saturday Night Live. Do you like stare in mirrors a lot and do do I what? Swish your hair back and forth. Uh, Have you seen the Californian skit on SNL? No, I don't think so. Where they just stare at themselves? You have to look it up and then you have to learn to do that impression as a Californian. My wife would tell you I do look in the mirror inordinately, but whatever. I like my beard. (laughs) Um, (laughs) No, you know what's crazy though is I have viewpoints that you wouldn't think come from the Bay, but I meet so many people that agree with me on a lot of stuff, you know? Like I I have a Trump hat. I know, I know. But, you know, I wear that out. Some people don't like that. And then I don't wear it out all the time. Every once in a blue moon, just for fun. But sometimes I get guys like, yeah, man, you know, Mexican guys. Native American guys that are like, dude, you like Trump? Oh man, I can't tell anybody. <laughs> and I'm on a bash. I don't care. I'll tell everybody. My kids go to a, a dual immersion Spanish speaking school and everybody knows kind of where I stand. I'm not shy about it, but I, I'm very active in the school. I support the school. We're actually fighting with the school board right now um, or the school district, the board's cool. The superintendent's a jerk, but you know, it's just crazy because when you, when you just treat people nicely, all of a sudden you can talk, you can disagree about literally everything and you can still get along and you can still well, treat each other nicely. How often do we get, I mean, conversations are sabotaged by the labels, right? Oh, yeah. Where if, if I go up to someone and I say, hi, I'm a pro-life feminist, I can guarantee most people are going to hate one of those two things right <laughs> off the bat. And there are so many assumptions that like their head explodes when they look at me because they're like, but you're a man hater who holds up bloody fetus signs and bullhorns and rape culture. Like, I don't know. And I have an asymmetrical haircut or something like if, if you just tried to envision what a pro-life feminist looks like, there's just so many stereotypes that we would put on both of those labels. But if I walk up to somebody and say, you know, I really have a heart for women facing crisis pregnancies because I had one, my mother experienced one, you know, I see how our culture kind of breaks women. And then a lot of times they end up in this situation and they think abortion is their best option. Um, 
I, I want them to know that they have other, you know, nonviolent options. So many people are on board with that. So many pro-choice people, so many post-abortive women that I know, like my, a majority of my friends actually are pro-choice and I'm glad, like, I, I do think it means I failed a little bit, but at the same time, like, I'm glad because they keep me sharp and it keeps me understanding that perspective so that I am able to talk to them. And, you know, it's funny because I'll get around certain pro-lifers who will be, you know, saying just like they have crazy buzzwords, right, that they use all the time where they're like, oh, down at the abortion mill and like other words like that, that I'm like you if you're trying to have a conversation with someone on the other side like i say fetus all the time i have no problem saying fetus i think it means like precious one in latin so it's actually even more humanizing in my opinion than the word baby is uh but when i'm talking to somebody who you know is liberal and pro-choice like i have absolutely no problem talking about the fetus and i find that then you know not even using that one buzzword by calling it a baby um they're much more willing to have a whole conversation with me and listen to my viewpoint about it and we are able to find so much common ground and that's kind of what gets me is we focus so much on like laws and politicians and this guy's pro-life but he's not pro-life enough he's not doing enough let's pour more money into like a campaign to get someone who's super pro you know how about what if we poured money into creating an alternative to Planned Parenthood rather than politicians who might defund Planned Parenthood at one point how about we create healthcare for women that does everything but abortion that would be fabulous you know like there are so many things that everybody could get in on board with that again would lead to a culture that makes abortion unthinkable not just illegal yeah. you know i think illegal is we look at ireland right now right they just overturned their referendum i know and the amount of money that was spent on the campaign to keep it illegal and, you know, to, to legalize it, both sides of that campaign spent so much money that could have actually gone towards creating a pro-life culture that helped women. Yeah. And so maybe it's just about like realigning our focus and finding that compromise with the other side, like stop screaming at them and find ways to work together. Because at the end of the day, I will tell you, nobody thinks abortion's awesome. Like maybe Lena Dunham. She's the one <laughs> turned in the world. Loves abortion, but like nobody else thinks it's good. Even women who have had abortions and feel like they made the right choice, they will still acknowledge that it was not like going to the spa and getting a massage. Like it's not a pleasant thing. Nobody wants this. So they are just as willing as we are to find ways to um, avoid it from ever coming to that in the first place. Well, honestly, even in the case of Lee and Dunham, I I feel kind of bad for her because she's such a miserable person. And I don't even think for her, I, I think for her, it's just a virtue signal. You know, she's just trying to be as good yeah. for the people that tell her she's wonderful as she can be. And it's so inauthentic. You know, it's not, we've lost, I think we've been pigeonholed so much, you know, by the government in a lot of ways that it's so sad because people, you know, like you said, we, we wait for these politicians to rescue us. And like Andrew Breitbart said, Politics is downstream of culture. If we don't win the cultural battle, if we don't change the culture, politics don't even matter. They really don't because they do what culture wants. And, you know, you can make the argument that the post and Jordan Peterson make this makes this argument is that the postmodernist mentality that everything's a construct. Nothing's real. There's no morality. There's no nothing. You know, they took over the institutions of learning and they won because they shaped the narrative. They shaped the construct. They shaped porn culture. 
they shaped abortion culture, you know? So if you can't go on a cultural level and change people's hearts and minds, waiting for Ronald Reagan to change the abortion laws, he didn't, by the way, is not going to work. It's, it's inane. It's silly. It's right. They're still going to, they're still going to happen. But yet when you look at the current pro-life movement, that is a majority of where the focus is. It's all on the laws. And so, I mean, that's just one thing where my group wants to, we really want to focus. We don't focus on the laws. We just don't. And a lot of people are very bothered by that, that we're not trying to like overturn Roe v. Wade. But I find that if I, if I'm, you know, headed into a conversation and right out of the gate, I start talking about like any, any, I mean, it can be a conversation about any political issue, but if I start talking about like, well, my Senator thinks like people shut up, nobody cares. Like that's stupid. Nobody wants to talk about that. But if I can talk about the fact that I feel women have been cheated in this way, because, you know, um, uh, look at how many ways society has not kind of had to step up and accommodate mothers. In so many ways, because instead we can just resent the crap out of them for not having an abortion. Like you're in the workforce and you get pregnant. Like, do you know uh, the hostility that women feel? I remember going back to work and telling them I was pregnant and just there was no congratulations. There was this sigh of like, are you kidding me? Because it became a burden to everybody else. And that is not progress, like progress for women in any way. But we have a culture that has made that human life optional. So people get to resent you. Well, people always treated my, my mom had 14 kids, right? My mom and dad get married young. They literally wanted 14 kids. Their email address was a reference to 14 kids for a long time, way before they were even close. But people always treated her weird because they're just like, oh, you poor thing. And she's like, this is what I want to do. Aren't we? I'm an empowered woman. Don't I get to choose how I live? Don't I get to choose my life? But it's only if it fits into that construct at this point. You know, if, if you're not Lena Dunham virtue signaling, then you're not a good actor. And I think that's a problem that infects both sides. Because if you don't told, if you don't love Ted Cruz, you're a bad conservative. You're not a principled conservative. You know, it, no, nobody's good enough for Ben Shapiro, right? And I think that's not a good thing. You know, like if you don't adhere to the doc, like free trade, you know, I am totally for imposing tariffs on countries that treat people badly. We shouldn't be benefiting from slave labor. We shouldn't. I don't care if it's what the market dictates. That's not good. We have to have a standard that protects human dignity. And so when you, when you go lockstep with every ideological point, you're going to end up becoming a tyrant. And I think that's what we're seeing now with people coming together, people that don't agree about everything. We're seeing this movement towards actually finding solutions rather than just bitching about problems and complaining. And then when you say, what's the solution? Everybody goes, oh, we're fucked. Yeah. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I think that it, I think that people are fed up with that. They're tired of it. They're tired of the divisiveness. They're tired of being against everything and not seeing any real solutions and expecting, you know, big daddy government to be our savior all the time. Like so much stuff happens at a grassroots level. And I'll, I'll just finish up by saying this. So my grandparents love Fox news and they have it all the time. Mine too. And (laughs) yeah. 
So holidays are, of course, them just complaining about whatever it is, whatever liberals pissing them off that day. And back in the day when it was Barack Obama, I mean, my grandmother would sit and talk about Barack Obama like he was the guy at the nursing home, like, you know, I don't know, shitting on the dinner table or something. Like, it was just, you don't know him. He does not affect your life, really. I mean, like, you'll get the ripple effects of his policy yeah. at some point. But on on the grand scheme, you can impact the people that might get a ripple of something he does so much more by, you know, affecting positive change in your, in your um, reach, within your reach, within your bubble, right? And so I always told her until Barack Obama's le- losing sleep about me, I'm not going to lose sleep about him until I'm a big enough deal that somebody's worried about what I'm going to do, then they're not in my orbit. But I can tell you that I can affect change at a local level in so many ways, you know, a number of times a day, if I actually look for opportunities to do it, if I turn off Fox News, and which I would never have on Fox yeah, News, but if, if my grandmother turned off Fox News and walked outside, um, there are so many people whose lives she could actually touch. And I wish more people kind of understood that. Um, and so I, this became kind of one of my sayings. Well, like when that person's leave, losing sleep over me, I'll start losing sleep over them. And my favorite one was Lena Dunham because she does, even as a feminist, she makes me crazy. Uh, I used to have a mug that said Lena Dunham's tears, like instead of male tears, it said Lena Dunham's tears. And but then my joke was, you know, hey, I don't I don't really care what she does until she's losing sleep over me. And then when we were kicked out of the Women's March, she actually got asked about it for Time Magazine. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, am I on her radar? Can I start bitching about her? Oh, that's, that's amazing. So and that's when I got the mug. So, yeah. All right. We ran into more technical difficulties. But we'd already done an hour and some minutes, 30-something minutes, so we decided not to try to get everything rebooted and went to bed like reasonable adults. Anyways, I think we talked about a lot of interesting things, and it was a great podcast. I really appreciate Destiny coming on and telling us about New Wave Feminists and what their message is and what they're trying to do. I think it's awesome. Um, Check them out again on Facebook and Instagram at New Wave Feminists, on Twitter at NWF Pro TX. NWF Pro TX. And go to their website, uh, newwavefeminist.com. And if you like what you're doing, you want to pitch in, you can donate to them. Uh, You can buy merchandise. They have some cool t shirts on there. Um, And also, if you can't afford to do any of that, then just go to their pages, post it, share it, let people know about them, get their message out there, help them out that way because they're doing some really cool stuff. Also, check us out, Blue Eye Mafia Podcast on Instagram and Facebook and Blue Eye Mafia on Twitter. And you can go to blueeyemafia.com for the podcast and coming soon, a website. Also, go to our sponsor, Strike Force. You can kick the can. You don't have to carry those evil cans around anymore. You can get a little pouch of energy and pour it into any beverage that you like and kick that can. And if you use our promo code, Blue Eye Mafia, at checkout, you save 20%. So go check out Strike Force Energy. It's delicious. It's wonderful. And I always give these guys a shout out. The Sofa King Podcast. They mentored us in doing this. They don't necessarily endorse our views on this program, but they did help us get up and started, gave us technical advice and that kind of stuff. Check them out. They do serial killers, cults, conspiracy theories, historical figures. They're awesome. They're hilarious. I mean, they are silly geese. So go check them out. They're amazing. 
Sofa King Podcast, Sofa King Podcast on social media and all that, and SofaKingPodcast.com. So again, check out New Wave Feminist, check out Blue Eye Mafia, and thank you for listening. And again, another thanks to Destiny for being gracious enough to come on and do a very long interview, despite the technical difficulties. Mike's off. <laughs>